Welcome to another episode of the AlbumReview.net podcast. I'm Greg Potters. In 1991, I struck gold and for one night sat front row to see Soundgarden live at the Worcester Centrum opening for Guns N' Roses. That night would change my life forever. And so for this episode, number 62, I'm going to review Soundgarden's third studio album, Bad Motor Finger. Many music fans of the 90s remember, or they might remember, Bad Motor Finger. It was released in the fall of 1991, six weeks after Pearl Jam's 10, and two weeks after Nirvana's Nevermind and Red Hot Chili Peppers' Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Other releases from this time period would include Guns N' Roses' Use Your Illusions 1 and 2, Metallica's Black Album, Smashing Pumpkins' Gish, and Primus's Sailing the Seas of Cheese, not to mention several others. But there was, no, there is something special about Bad Motor Finger. Soundgarden was the first band from the grunge label that would sign a major record deal and it's most likely their lead singer, Chris Cornell, who had the best vocal range of any singer in rock music, not just the Seattle scene. Hey, Pauline, give me some of your tots. No, go find your own. Come on, give me some of your tots. No, I'm freaking starved. I didn't get to eat anything today. Oh, God. Gross. Freaking idiot. <laughs> so grab your Starbucks coffee, your raincoat, and don't give up any of your tots to that D-bag as we dig deep into Soundgarden's 1991 album, Bad Motor Finger. December 6th, 1991. 
I entered the Worcester Centrum in Worcester, Massachusetts, just outside Boston, to see one of my favorite bands of my younger years, Guns N' Roses. At an average of about $20 per ticket, which was a lot for me at the time, it was important to never miss the opening act, for I wanted to get my money's worth, quote-unquote, as my father-in-law used to say. The Centrum smelled like cigarette smoke and artificial smoke, likely from those smoke machines on stage. They must have been testing those machines a few minutes before they let the fans into the venue. The Centrum was old-looking. It, it still is. I, I was lucky enough to be friends with John Casey. John was a classmate of mine, and his father had connections. So I had no idea what seating charts were all about, nor did I bother to figure out where we were sitting, even as I, even as I looked at my ticket. In 1991, MTV and the radio were virtually everything. I, I collected all the information on tours and music from these two forms of media. And maybe, in addition to that, uh, some of the magazines like Circus and Hit Parader. I knew Guns had an opening act, but I had never heard of them. Sound something. Sound what? Sound something. Sound garden, I think? That's what I told John when he asked me what the opening act was. The usher looked at our tickets and winked, saying, Come with me, boys. Where are we going, I wondered. As we followed him, I could see the ripped black metal t-shirts and hairspray teasing all the ladies' hair, practically up to the ceiling. I could see the front of the stage, and as we followed, we drew closer and closer until there we were, the front row. I couldn't believe what I had just experienced. By December 1991, I had been to a few concerts, but never even close to the front, let alone for G and F and R. So the lights went out and a voice came over the PA. Hey, Worcester, are you ready? From Seattle, Washington, please welcome Soundgarden. And we were off. That evening would go down as one of the greatest concerts I had ever seen. After that night, I went to my local Strawberries and purchased Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger the next day. As I tore the long cardboard box open, the CD fell out. The cover of Bad Motorfinger is comprised of a jagged tornado circular design, in the center of which is a triangle that has the album's title along the interior perimeter with a spark plug in the middle. Guitarist Kim Thale came up with the title. While thinking of the Montrose song, Bad Motor Scooter, he made a play with words, calling it Bad Motor Finger. He told a reporter in 1992, quote, I simply liked it because it was colorful. It was kind of aggressive too, unquote. 
The importance of this album is colossal. Listening to this in its entirety again 32 years later after purchasing it, this album has even more meaning to me. Aside from the hits like Rusty Cage, Outshined, and Jesus Christ Pose, the deep tracks are stronger, which is how I think most classic albums are. Won't Get Fooled Again is a, it's a great song, but it's not the Who's Best. Same with Money on Dark Side of the Moon. The same goes for Purple Haze, right? I would be remiss if I didn't mention the importance of this album is also directly related to the band's lead singer, Chris Cornell. Anyone who has heard Chris sing knows he is among the greatest. Not just of rock or grunge or metal, but of all music. In 1991, Chris's vocals were a lot louder and hard-hitting. As his career progressed through the late 90s and into the 21st century, his voice would sincerely mature, bringing Chris to world-famous status. All the more remarkable is that Chris Cornell was originally the band's singing drummer before Matt Cameron took over at drums and Chris moved to rhythm guitar, in addition, of course, to lead vocals. The band started out of Seattle, Washington, way back in 1984, getting their name from a sculpture erected in a Seattle park, which was said to channel the wind. Made of pipe, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration named the sculpture a sound garden. Produced by Terry Date, their producer for their previous album, Louder Than Love, Bad Motorfinger was originally scheduled for release on September 24, 1991. The record company, A&M, pushed it back to October 8, 1991 due to what they called production issues, quote-unquote. Many who follow 90s grunge and many who've listened to my podcasts know this time period consisted of album releases that would change the landscape of music forever. And this didn't just apply to that genre that was dubbed grunge. The album was released six weeks after Pearl Jam's 10 and two weeks after Nirvana's Nevermind and Red Hot Chili Peppers' Blood Sugar Sex Magic, which were both released on the same day, September 24th, 1991. What an unbelievable span of a few weeks in music. Bad Motorfinger kicks off with the destructive Rusty Cage. The song starts with Kim Thale's underwater-sounding guitar dueling against itself.
for the intro, Thale used a wah-wah pedal apparently as an audio filter for his guitar. The song was considered by many as metal. It was heavier and grittier than Friends Pearl Jam's debut, which came out the same year, and it was more technical than Nirvana's Nevermind. This band had evolved from two chord progressions, simply written songs, to rhythm-changing melodies that would test any musician's skills. Rusty Cage breaks down the tenacious sound that is the band. And unlike its previous two albums, Louder Than Love and Ultra Mega OK, Bad Motorfinger is far superior, in my opinion. It's a cut above their previous two, not just because of better sound engineering, but also because of better songwriting. The album's next track, Outshined, which received significant commercial success on MTV and the radio, continues the trend of the album with a kind of a metal hard rock sound. Perhaps maybe like Led Zeppelin mixed in a blender with Black Sabbath. But arguably, and don't strike me down music gods, arguably stronger vocals. Cornell said Outshined is about going from, quote, periods of extreme self-confidence to plummeting in the opposite direction, unquote. Although catchy and radio-friendly, it still consists of that dark riff and backbeat that is metal. Not so much speed metal, but a metal that would eventually be labeled grunge. Soundgarden was the first grunge band to sign a major label when the band joined A&M Records in 1989. Most of the Seattle bands at the time were very aware of the grunge genre title, and most, if not all, rejected this title. New bass player Ben Shepard joined the band just before the recording of Bad Motorfinger. Shepard had been keeping tabs on Soundgarden and admitted sometime after he joined they were his favorite band in the late 80s, 
before he became a member. In regard to their genre or tag, Shepard commented to a reporter in a 2013 interview, quote, the term grunge is just for marketing. Our music is called rock and roll, or it's called punk rock or whatever. We were never grunge. We were just a band from Seattle, unquote. Thayo and Shepard would do a drop down to the D for the opening riff in Outshined. <laughs> that kind of sounded funny. Cornell elaborated more on his feelings when he wrote the song. He shared that many times he would go through periods of extreme self-confidence, feeling like he could do anything. But then he will hear a person say something, significant or not, and he would get something in his head and immediately his confidence would sink in the opposite direction. Cornell admitted at times he, quote, felt like he was a piece of crap, end quote. He used the memory of these experiences as the theme to writing Outshined. Perhaps this ended up as a metaphor for what happened to Chris in 2017. As I wrote this and discussed it in my previous review of the motion picture soundtrack to the film Singles, after finishing a concert at the Fox Theater in Detroit on May 17, 2017, the bodyguard of Chris Cornell found him unconscious in the bathroom of his hotel room, room 1136 at the MGM Grand Hotel. Prior to this discovery, Chris had called his bodyguard initially to help him fix his computer. After this visit, his bodyguard left. Later that night, he returned and found Cornell lying on the floor with what was described as an exercise band tied around his neck and blood in his mouth. Records show that it took medics 41 minutes to arrive on the scene after Chris's bodyguard called them. The official cause of death was ruled a suicide by hanging. Police ruled out any foul play. They reviewed phone records and hotel surveillance video, which showed no one entering or exiting Chris's hotel room after his bodyguard left him alone. Like many other talented musicians, Chris would join the Died Way Too Soon Club. He would also join his friends and fellow mu Seattle musicians, Kurt Cobain and Lane Staley, in the afterlife. The ending for Cobain and Staley, although tragic, I think is a little bit more understood today. For Cornell, many, including myself, just continue to wonder what the hell drove him to jump off that cliff that night and end it all. I have to say, I'm not satisfied with his announced cause of death. I'm just not. I'm Greg Potters with albumreview.net. Are you looking to start your own podcast? I can save you a ton of time and money by helping you launch, publish, and grow your podcast. So this includes things like finding the equipment, the software, and tips and tricks that are gonna be right for you and your budget. Also, if you're looking for things like editors, designers, or you just wanna find out what the best platform to use is, that's what I do. So you can find me at albumreview.net or message me directly at gpotters at albumreview.net. The third single from Bad Motorfinger, Jesus Christ Pose, drops down to a detuning just as Outshine did. Tuning the low E string, which is the fattest string on the, a standard guitar, to a D 
gives a deeper, darker sound that many musicians in metal use. In an interview with Spin Magazine in 1992, Cornell described his motivation behind writing the song. The lyrics discuss his distaste for people who use religion as a way to exploit others. He said, quote, You just see it a lot with really beautiful people or famous people, exploiting that symbol as to imply that they're either a deity or persecuted somehow by their public. So it's pretty much a song that is non-religious, but expressing being irritated by seeing that. It's not that I would ever be offended by what someone would do with that symbol, end quote. MTV would ban the video for Jesus Christ pose as it created a lot of controversy the music channel didn't want to get involved with. The video portrays a girl on a cross and of course includes several mentions of the word Jesus, which many perceived at the time as anti-Christian. Okay. As a result, the band received many death threats from religious nuts who never took the time to actually listen to the lyrics. In addition to the three mentioned radio singles, Bad Motorfinger is stacked with a significant amount of quality deep tracks. It's hard for me to pick my favorite. Slaves and Bulldozers strikes a chord with me. Being a bass player, 
I can't help but feel tied to the bass line at the beginning of it. It sets up the melody for the rest of the song. show Slaves and Bulldozers is considered by Manny as one of Chris Cornell's greatest vocal performances. He certainly has many. My favorite record producer, Rick Rubin, actually played this song for Brad Wilk, Tim Comerford, and Tom Morello when the three at the time former members of Rage Against the Machine were considering finding a new lead singer for a band they were forming. After Rage singer Zach De La Rocha left the band in 2000, it's noted that this song, Slaves and Bulldozers, convinced the three to ask Cornell to join their band, which they would later call Audio Slave. Audio Slave would last six years and go on to release three albums, receive three Grammy nominations, and sell more than eight million records worldwide. I'm not surprised Brad, Tim, and Tom were impressed by Cornell's vocals on Slaves and Bulldozers. However, if we're being honest, Ruben probably could have played any song by Cornell to impress them. One song I wanted to call out is Mind Riot. Although it's close to impossible to choose the best song, this is close to the top for me on Bad Motorfinger. Slower in tempo, this track has an emotional sentiment to it. Cornell wrote this as an homage to his late friend Andrew Wood, 
lead singer of the Seattle band Mother Love Bone. I love the drum beat in this track. It's not your standard 4-4 drum line or time signature. Instead of your usual kick drum hi-hat combo hit, followed immediately by your standard single snare hit, drummer Matt Cameron plays a time signature that is the opposite of standard, comprised of using the toms in a syncopated rhythm. Chris's vocals are romantic, even though he is singing about the riot that is taking place in his mind. It's also important to note that guitarist Kim Thale tuned every string on his guitar to E for this song. It was recommended by Cornell after Pearl Jam bassist Jeff Ament jokingly made a comment to him, dude, you should write a song where the entire guitar is just tuned to E. Ament later joked that he never thought Cornell would take him seriously. Bad Motor Finger peaked at number 39 on the Billboard Top 200 charts by early 1992. It was among the 100 top-selling albums of 1992, sold a million copies in the early 1990s, and was certified platinum by the RIAA, or Recording Industry Association of America, by early 1993. The album went on to achieve critical acclaim, most music critics felt it was a sizable improvement from their first two albums and from their mid-80s EPs. It certainly hooked me as a 14 and 15 year old. I consider Bad Motorfinger an album that shaped my musical abilities, 
taste and direction on how I would later write music of my own. On that night, December 6, 1991, my musical life would be forever changed at that Worcester Centrum. While sitting, and sometimes, many times actually, standing in the front row, watching Cornell and Soundgarden knock my face off, I would later shift fully into Seattle mode, and for about two years, immerse myself in the city's music scene. That same Soundgarden performance was capped off with me catching Chris Cornell's Dunlop Gray Nylon guitar pick at the end of their show. And today, 32 years later, that same pick hangs in a frame behind glass along with a picture of Chris and a written dedication to his life and his music. So do whatever you want. Buy this album or don't buy this album. But if you like my other reviews, well then, if you trust me, then you should listen. For this is a Hall of Fame record. Thanks again for listening to my review of Soundgarden's third studio album, Bad Motorfinger. Like I said, I still have that guitar pick today. It hangs on my wall like a trophy. If you're interested in any of the albums or books that I've discussed in this episode or previous episodes, go to albumreview.net and pick up a copy of your own. Listen to all my podcast album reviews at albumreview.net by clicking on the podcast tab. They can also be heard wherever podcasts are available. Please follow the show on your preferred platform so you can get regular updates on new episodes. And also, if you guys would be so kind as to pop a quick review or rate the podcast, that helps move the needle and get the word out there. I do want to hear from you, so please email me your feedback, album review requests, and any questions you might have to gpotters at albumreview.net. That's G-P-O-T-T-E-R-S at albumreview.net. And if you'd like to get regular updates on reviews, interviews, product and music news, 
go to the homepage and join the mailing list. Visit our YouTube page and stay tuned for updates on Instagram, Facebook, and that thing they call TikTok. You can find me at albumreviewnet. All right, thanks guys. Down by the highway Take a trip down